0: rise smile films the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits journey with us as we encounter new old and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music proceed with caution as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language
1: this is matt and this is jesse today on tap we have star wars episode 5 the empire strikes back starring mark hamill carrie fisher harrison ford directed by irvin kershner Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. Today we're unveiling film two in our galaxy far, far away cask, The Empire Strikes Back. This is one we're definitely looking forward uh, to talking about. Uh, we just finished watching it in the next room there. But Matt, wait a minute. I think we have more Imperial spies entering the base. Imperial
0: troops have entered the base. Imperial troops have entered the base.
1: Today we're being joined by another guest. Uh, We're being joined by Blake, so I'm going to let him introduce himself today. Thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure, guys. I've been looking forward to this. Frequent listener of the podcast and uh, big Star Wars fan, so happy to be here. And thank you so much for uh, letting me be a part of this.
1: Excellent. Thank you for bringing breakfast this morning. (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot. (laughs) So we went through last week's bottle rather quickly, I might add. Uh, So that's uh, warranted us to uh, purchase another bottle. Matt, why don't you introduce that for us? This
0: is Iron Root Harbinger's XC. Uh, Brand new? We'll see. no idea what this is going to be like. Um, we'll
1: so we, we did we did the raw watch, and now we're going to do the raw taste exactly test. Exactly.
0: Well said. There you
1: go. Thank you. All right, gentlemen. Here's to the Here three of us. Cheers. Thoughts up,
0: Rye Nation. Here's to you. That
1: has an interesting smell to it.
0: Whoo! That end doesn't play, does it? Mm-mm. Little vanilla there. I
1: can taste a little caramel too. A little yeah, caramel.
0: Probably. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, and maybe yeah, a touch yeah. of cinnamon there.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Where that's, they where are they brewing that in? Miss Kentucky. Oh, that's nice. Iron root. Never heard of it before, and that's that's pleasant to pull
0: all that out of just some. Mm -hmm. wood is pretty impressive isn't it (laughs) Some wood (laughs) excellent nice
1: well today we're talking about the empire strikes back from 1980 the second film in the original star wars trilogy you know we're going to talk all about you know just the everything from the story to what it was like to see this film for the very first time but as we know as we've talked about on this show before if we have guests the guests have to bring the questions. So, Blake, you've uh, proposed uh, both the flight and the nightcap question for us this week, so why don't you go ahead and hit us with that?
2: Well, to start us off for the flight, uh, a big thing with Star Wars and the entire Star Wars franchise is world-building, and so I was curious if you guys could list your top three Star Wars worlds, Um, and that can be anywhere from canon, so any of the movies, not just these original trilogy we're talking about, and... uh, I'll call it worlds, it doesn't have to be planets, cities, space stations, whatever you have, uh, I think is on the table.
1: Excellent. Why don't, why don't when you go first, why don't you start us out?
2: So, my number three, I'm actually going to jump to the prequels, shockingly. <laughs> but uh, always thought uh, the, the planet of Coruscant was fairly well developed. Um, it was one of the more original concepts, I think, uh, from... The sets of newer movies. This planet that's entirely a city and plays home to uh, kind of the galactic senate and all the government. And whether or not you like all the bureaucracy portions of the original prequels, it does play well for the taxation of (laughs) establishing this kind of central location that doesn't have the interests of maybe the rest of the galaxy um, in mind. They live a very different life from the rest of the. worlds that we see. So that that would be my number three.
1: I think the visual look of Coruscant is very interesting to me, at least. It's just this gigantic cityscape that's the entire planet. And yeah, to kind of see a piece of the galaxy that Unless you're involved in the bureaucracy, the government war isn't necessarily affecting this city, like the Galactic War, the Clone War, and whatever, whatever war. So they kind of just kind of go about their business, which was very different to see compared to a lot of the planets we're seeing in this original trilogy right now.
0: To take something that's science fiction, and if you put it too far out in the realms of unrelatable to the viewer, then it becomes a lot of work Mm -hmm. to try to understand exactly what that is. To give it a Washington, D.C.-esque feel. The capital, the central hub, the government, the bureaucratic establishment, I think is a really important case. Because as we talked about last week, so much of the science fiction genre is based in the West. So you civilize it a little bit and give government a role. And as we know, it's a huge part of this entire film is Mm -hmm. government. Yep. Okay, good. That's a nice one. Yep. Okay, number three for me is Kashyyyk. Uh, I think looking at the jungle-esque isn't really all that yeah. avant-garde, but here's what's important about Kashyyyk to me is it quells the the regrets I have over Endor.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, because it's the original Endor. So yeah. <laughs> it's what it should have been. Yeah. We'll
0: get to that next week, right? Yep. Uh, so I don't want to get too much into that because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that next week. But yeah. for me, at three, Kashyyyk. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's... that's that
1: excellent we'll be drawn from the prequels a lot oh man this is foreign territory (laughs) i'm actually gonna shoot to to the to the new trilogy for for my number three entry and that's the planet of crate this is the planet seen at the end of, of the last jedi what i like about this planet is a lot of what i like about this original trilogy was a lot of the mystery enveloped on these worlds or in the questions left unanswered here you have this abandoned rebel base that was set up who knows when? And just the planet itself. I think when we saw it in the trailers, we thought, "Oh, this is Hot Two It's a planet made of salt, really. And you know, they have these these gem caves and and the the, the wildlife on there. Just something's uh, just a little different, but oddly familiar to what we kind of like about classic Star Wars. And I thought the the kind of end sequence that they that they had on this planet was was fairly well done. So, uh, yeah, that's my number three crate.
2: What I just to add to that, what I really love about that planet is visually it's striking. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got a lot of thoughts on the newest films, and you don't have me around to talk to talk about those ones. But visually, I, I think they come across extremely well. The mm-hmm. the white salt crystals versus that red undertones mm-hmm. um, in the middle of these fight scenes yeah. is just visually very impressive, very striking. And, and I do appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Go ahead, number two.
2: All right, so number two comes from the movie we're going to be talking about today, and that is Hoth. Um, though it's just an ice planet at its core, I think what makes it so memorable are the activities, the battle scenes that happen on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the development of this, you've effectively established a whole nother set of uh, ships for land battle, the the Imperial, imperial Walkers, and uh, it really adds to the the creation of the empire and the, and the uh, resistance, not the resistance, sorry, the rebels um, that we uh, build on from the first movie.
1: And it certainly lends itself to a much different wardrobe for the rebels than we've <laughs> seen. Cause you gotta be bundled up. You're going to freeze to death out there. So yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll save some of my comments for, for the episode about Hoth. but it's good. Good entry.
0: So my number two is actually Bespin um, cloud city. I think what it gives is kind of what you brought up a little bit with uh, Kurosakunt. And it's kind of the metropolis, megapolis, large city kind of feel. I also like that it's sort of stationed in the clouds. I think that limits where you can go. I'm going to get to that a lot in this podcast Mm -hmm. as far as like the the box-endedness of what the Empire Strikes Back is. Mm -hmm. If you go out into cloud city and the name of the place is cloud city or best been technically, if you make a wrong step, you're stepping through a cloud. <laughs> so you're limited in the space. Yeah. And I just think that the sequences where Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are sort of squaring off at the end play better. in that indoors in a skyscraper esque like feel, um, than they might in an open environment. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't work also in an open environment. But for me, I really like the glass. And I love I love the lighting. As crazy as this is, yeah. I love the lighting on the carbonite scene when Han goes frozen. Oh. That orange, red, <clears throat> anger, hot. With like the blue backdrop. Oh, man. It's just, like you said, visually striking. The mm-hmm. colors in that are so, so terrific for me. Um, that's number two for me, Bestman. That's cool. Okay, thanks.
1: Excellent. Uh, my number two... Um, Taking it back to the prequels. So, one of the things I tried to do when thinking of the list was I didn't want us all to like have Tatooine, like, and all have the same worlds. So, I started kind of like looking at stuff from within the world. So, my number two is actually Tatooine, but for everything that the prequels does wrong, one of the, I think, some of the newer things it does is expand on the world and in the world of sport. And it's got to be the pod racing arena sequence. What a cool, like, thing to see it's it's nascar on acid uh to an extent but just how fast these things are going through the caves and you know if you've been fortunate enough to play the nintendo 64 pod racing game you kind of know like what that intensity is think about like up to episode one we really only see war and twinges of government and power play we never get to see leisure in the star i think this is the first time we truly get to see something that we could enjoy and spectate and it's it's truly i think probably the best sequence in that entire film so that's my number two
2: and just to add to that i'm glad you mentioned the pod racing because in the hall of fame of video games i think that nintendo 64 pod racing game's got it belongs in there it's got to be in there i I loved that well they they, they
1: even had one too if you like in the death of the arcade, they had like one where you actually sat in a pod and you like controlled it. Uh, That was pretty cool.
2: It was pretty cool. Yeah. So my number one, and, uh, some may debate whether this is a world or not, but, uh, in my intro, I mentioned space stations and that left an obvious, uh, opening for me to list the death star as my number one and not the star killer one, the real death star, (laughs) the original, um, you know, the the concept for that just is so uh, evident of the Empire and its kind of giant power over the rest of the galaxy. And uh, though at, at its core, when they're wandering around, it's mostly just a big kind of gray um, spaceship is all it comes down to. I, I think it's so iconic in the world of Star Wars. So that's my number one.
0: Hoth is my number one. I think... What Hoth creates for the characters is something that we get a little bit, you could maybe argue at Dagobah a bit with the swamp, but the man versus, and this is going to surprise you, the man versus nature element, because that's not a theme that I usually tend to care a whole lot about in film. Yeah. It's freaking cold, man. Mm -hmm. So there's already a ticking bomb element to this environment that you're existing in. And I think in the snow with lasers, and large tanks as we sort of play out the battle on hoth between the snowspeeders and the AT-ats and the atsts essentially blitzkrieg mm-hmm. it looks really cool and if it goes south and you can't get back to the base which essentially is what happens and why they have to flee then you're stuck mm-hmm. and they set that up so well in the beginning of the film from the vehicles that they use the horses essentially the Tauntons. yeah to the indigenous people that we come across, the wampa, to the time element that's working against you. It's everything that I like also about the Western genre in the West. It's fucking hot. There's only cactuses. Uh, There's no water. Take the exact opposite of that. It's freezing. In the middle of the day, it's negative 80. And so what you've created is an encompassing or encapsulating technique that leaves very little outs for anyone to go because it's fucking cold. Mm-hmm. So if you're stripped of all your stuff, blasters, lightsabers, whatever,
1: good you're luck. screwed yeah, good unless luck. you're
0: going to be stuck in a tauntaun for five minutes until, <laughs> that, until that heat dissipates as well. Exactly. It's a very, very effective way to show a cool battle sequence in an environment that honestly... I'm not sure how they, to the brilliance of the writing and the direction of that this particular film, mm-hmm. how somehow they so seamlessly worked that in so that it didn't seem off-putting and outlandish. Because like, it truly is a terrible rebel base if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Why would you choose that unless yeah. it's, it's so obscure that maybe it's forgotten? And isolated.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to, to expand upon that point, I think it actually has a big... Um, use in the story because we've just come off of a new hope where the rebels have uh, blown up the death star so you're kind of wondering you know are they actually winning right now and hoth almost very quickly establishes no they have still had to choose the most remote the most undesirable planet for a base because they very much are still uh not on even footing with the Empire and so I think it's actually very important to the story in that regards to kind of establish and that whole sequence is really that yeah we're still uh looking at the underdogs here they are not mm-hmm. uh winning this uh fight by any means even though they won the last battle
1: excellent good choices guys I can't believe I'm doing this for number one but I guess I'm gonna let the prequels have its day for oh this goodness. for this list number one for me I like a good backdrop. You mentioned how just visually the look of the the Carbonate freezing room and best for Luke and Vader is it just works. It's just a nice backdrop to have for this lengthy kind of sword fight. I think that's been done well throughout this 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 franchise. I'm actually gonna go number one, Mustafar. And I like volcanoes. I think lava's badass. I know I'm talking like a third, third three year old here, but I think the backdrop for the the battle within revenge of the sith i think makes it exciting and maybe it does go on for a little too long but like how you talk about with kind of outs and where do you go as that scene progresses they these two characters they run out of outs they were to the point where they're literally like dangling from like cables on the this kind of cavernous like lo- these lava chambers i think it just looks really cool and again to the mystery of what i like about star wars I want to know more about this world but then i kind of don't i want to know about the functionality but then i kind of don't i just like how its place within this universe and just something we never got to see before leading up to that so that's gonna actually be my number one
2: good choices now part of the reason i came up with this question is just uh and it's not surprising that we necessarily picked a few from the prequels it's one thing i haven't really loved about some of the newer movies is they go to a lot of worlds but they don't seem very consequential in the grand scheme of theme uh, things i I feel like everyone can recall tatooine Mm -hmm. hoth cloud city they're so integrated into the original trilogy and to some extent the prequels um
1: that's one thing that's one thing i think the prequels actually did fairly well as kind of set up new worlds and arenas
2: and and the newest movies to me they don't really delve into these places they're more visual sets is what they come across to me so mm-hmm. i definitely appreciate uh, the amount of time spent on hoth in cloud city in this mm-hmm. movie in particular so that's definitely. part of what led me to to bring the question up so
1: awesome i think we're off to a good start cheers to all those choices and just great world building by lucas the writers all the filmmakers involved so let's get right to it. We've been talking about Hoth. Let's actually go there. I don't want to freeze my ass off, though. <laughs> so here's our review breakdown of Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Ben, you will go to the Dagobah system. Dagobah system. There you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. Man! Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, starts out with something that we've talked about on the podcast before, Matt, and I want to talk about it just a little to kind of start. We get in late with this film, and it's one of the reasons why I've always really liked it. There's some obvious time passage between the awards scene at the end of A New Hope and kind of the Empire probing the galaxy looking for the Rebel Alliance. Yeah two three years maybe it's the passage of when these films were made which is 77 to 80 about three years but i like that you know as soon as we get uh we start seeing the characters the first film did such a good job of establishing roles and character traits that we instantly just kind of pick up like like where they left off kind of a thing especially with luke here on on the tauntaun as he's just viciously attacked by the wampa by the wampa creature (laughs) But then, you know, we're introduced to the rest of our rebel players, Han Solo, Princess Leia, taking a real good in this film, I, I really noticed like just kind of a general command of of the Alliance uh, uh, Leia's role, whether it's, you know, kind of formulating the battle plans or kind of, you know, listening to the far reaches of space, kind of like contact uh, she's kind of very integral into the rebels, you know, plight at this point.
0: I think to that we start off with I guess the leader of Hoth, the Hoth Alliance forces is, is Admiral or General Rekin. Mm-hmm. But really, who's kind of in charge is Princess Leia. Now, it serves the purpose insofar as that's one of the more familiar characters that we've already met. So we understand her role and kind of where she fits in the story. But if you go back just a few hours, and that is Into a New Hope, it wasn't that long ago when she was a stowaway hiding essentially a DVD in R2-D2 with some stolen plans. So we've really now progressed Angenue Leia Mm -hmm. with the buns on the side of her head to a changed hairstyle and grown her up. And I think it goes back, so I'm sort of piggybacking on what you said, to just how few choices there are to actually lead this alliance. If she's ascended to this power where she's pretty much running things in the span of, what, six months in Star Wars time, sure. maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe-ish, right? Mm-hmm. That's fair. There's just not that much hope out there and terrible leadership on top of it. Mm-hmm. If that's how, because, and we talked about this in the screening, man, she's sort of the jack of all trades from the names that they give her to I can fly the Millennium Falcon and I'm an engineer and I'm all of these things. There's just no, no help available yeah. because it's either been wiped out already by the Empire or, or the
1: help wants to leave in Han Or they're Solo. just not
0: capable. Yeah. So we're establishing, I think, a very limited supply of outs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Went to with that? Yeah. And then I, I guess
2: I'll move on to another character just to talk about Luke's development as well. I think it becomes very evidence, evident. I mean, you guys talked in the last podcast about how he's kind of this whiny kid, uh, hot shot pilot sort of thing. And he does save the day, but he's not the type of person you'd really follow, it becomes very clear immediately that he's now an integral part of the rebellion. Um, Han as well, though he's threatening to leave or um, Mm -hmm. uh, at least talking about it at the beginning. And so um, that is something I appreciate about both episodes four and five, as they very quickly get you back into the action. I think part of it is the scroll at the beginning that catches you up. But part of it's just good writing in terms of just throwing you right into the middle, um, showing you where the characters are, who's good, who's bad, which side is winning. Um, these uh, first two Star Wars episodes really do a good job of establishing that right out of the gate. So you're not spending a lot of the story trying to figure
1: out where we are. Yeah, we're not spending you know, 30 minutes in the next film just kind of figure out. Oh God, we got to introduce all this stuff. <laughs> One thing that always jumps out to me just right from the beginning of this film, and we touched on it a little bit when we were watching it, is just the the look of of this film. Now, I don't want to call New Hope cheap looking. But it's kind of cheap-looking, whether it's the costumes or just kind of the rickety, mostly set that hasn't been altered. To me, now that Star Wars is the behemoth that it is, you know, Lucas uh, helped you know fund 33 million dollars of, of whether on loans or profits from the first film to totally bankroll this film on his own, no studio interference, and it looks good. It, whether and I, and I think that's you have a yeah you have a better director in the chair who has a, a better idea of look and. And lighting and placement, and that's going to come into play later. But I, I, to me, this movie, just in production value, even Vader's voice always sounds very mono sounding. Like it's missing like a depth, like just a, like yeah, a little hollow sounding. Mm-hmm. And here when he starts speaking, it has that that bass tone on, on the sound spectrum. So everything's just been amped up a little bit. We're playing with the same cards, but man, we're not like a brand new casino. Well <laughs> yeah.
0: said. Speed's important. I think when you set out to make a movie, you come to a decision probably early on in the writing process or storytelling process. Is this going to be drama? And as such, let's make it character driven. So you're going to have some exposition. Is this going to be science fiction or action? Thus, we need to up the violence and the guns and the militaristic pieces in that. I think what this movie does really well is it decides that we're going to make this an action movie. And despite the fact that it's an action movie, there is still several threads of drama that are woven into the story, whether it be before it becomes incestuous, the triangle between Han, Leia, and Luke, uh, the family legacy and rule and heir to the throne, uh, usurping the established forces of government. There is some relatable drama elements to this, but the speed is really important. And you said something that I wanted to get to here. There's two kinds of villains, guys. Mm -hmm. You have the villain that, upon just mentioning it, everyone automatically hates. I'll give you, in Indiana Jones, the Nazis. We don't have to dick around with developing that character because you just mentioned that, and everyone's like, oh yeah, they're hateable. So you can speed the story. The other one is you can still have a villain that's played out a little bit more in depth through drama. Let me give you Thanos. Mm -hmm. I would argue Thanos is a little bit right. Mm -hmm. If you don't like pollution, which I don't know anyone that like likes pollution. There's a bit of Thanos in you. People in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So like the argument on that's solving our problems. Mm-hmm. That's drama. Yeah. This movie chooses to use both of those as we have literally stormtroopers, okay, ripped from the Third Reich. I, and then, I was
1: going to say too, and I want to continue where you were going with that. Stormtroopers, especially in their snow attire looking real nazi like with Boy, the, the like the oh, the, yeah. the the helmets, uh, especially yeah the general in the ad at
0: that is my favorite looking stormtrooper in the entire series though
1: the the snow with yeah, the snow get he
0: looks yeah third Reich bit aside yeah. obviously yeah so we make the decision which you guys have already said that this is going to be an action movie and this movie goes from one crisis to another to another to another to another to another there is no time off to sit and sort of gather if you want to have character development, it's in the three seconds from crisis A to B in the film. And usually that drama is crisis. Like, I know you love me. No, I don't. You're you're a scoundrel. You love scoundrels. No, you like even that is drama. It goes to mm-hmm. really, really, really well written. Mm-hmm. Maybe arguably. Yeah. Arguably. Yeah. The best written sequel ever.
1: Yeah. We could certainly make that case. Okay. Let's stick with the Empire here for just a little bit. The film is called The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. One of the things I think that gets confused with a lot of Star Wars is the iconic Imperial March, the boom, 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 thinking that came in the prior film. This is the first time we get to hear it. Anytime the Empire's up to any – it's sometimes fast. It's sometimes slow. It's sometimes grandiose. It's sometimes mellow. Yeah. Um, But let's talk about, and Blake, I'd like you to speak on this, just Vader and his just his incompetent lackey generals that just (laughs) totally bite the dust.
2: So, I mean, this to me is, uh, so the first scene with Vader in this is just absolute perfection to me. And I don't mean to fanboy too much, but it's the introduction of the Imperial March, which is one of the best movie
1: themes, themes,
2: you know, ever. Um, John Williams did excellent in this movie to add to what he did in the previous movie. You get a Yoda theme, you get an Imperial March, you get the Han and Leia Uh. love theme. To me, this is his, you know, best uh, work in the Star Wars series, and he's good throughout, right? But Mm -hmm. then... Um, just so quickly you establish that Vader has elevated above his level of power in the mm-hmm. previous movie. He's choking out his admirals left and right, you know. Um,
1: digital chokeouts. He does that one guy through the screen, he doesn't even like raise a hand. And there's <laughs>
2: no one like Grandmoff Tarkin to challenge him. You know, they seemed mm, like good. equals in the previous, yes. and it very quickly is established. Vader is in charge here mm-hmm. of this giant imperial fleet and you know, no one's going to question him. No one can question him. He has full autonomy to do whatever he wants and seems even more evil than he did in the previous
1: uh, and we, episode. And we see it visually right from the start with his Imperial Superstar Destroyer just towering over the the ones we thought were gigantic in the prior film. Like, this thing's a behemoth.
2: 17 miles long is what they were designing it to look like, is what
0: I read. So, really? Yeah, which is that's a massive. C- that's a city. <laughs> <laughs> the parallelism between Vader's rise to power. Because remember in A New Hope, he's dismissed by Tarkin Incorporated mm-hmm. with his ancient silly religion. And go over there with your silly non-secular blah, 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 too. Yeah. Yeah. Now that silly religion is choking people out through screens mm-hmm. and in charge of the Imperial fleet. And if you compare that to, and I would say not as effective a way, but also the rise of Leia mm-hmm. as the leader of the rebels. Mm. Man, my money's on the Empire. Yeah. If it's choose between A or B, even with his <laughs> unfortunate and inconsequential and bad group of lackey, Ozma, Ozil, Veers, Piat, all the guys that end up dying in there, mm-hmm. I'm still taking my money still on Vader. And yeah. here's the other thing, too, that's going to be revealed. We are not even really looking at the person who's officially in charge of the Empire yet either, are we? Exactly. And Jesus Christ. So there's stronger than Vader yeah. versus... Luke, Leia, and Han. I mean, it, the deck is stacked. Exactly. And that's a really good thing because now you have such an unconquerable mountain to climb mm-hmm. for our heroes. Yeah. And Han's like worried about a $10,000 bounty on his head. Yeah. That's taken place of your alliance to your friends versus Vader and the Emperor. And as much as we've bagged on Ozzel and the militaristic style of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. does not looking good for the, for the rebels.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that writing real quick, just because I think this is a benefit of just how the how it's kind of played off of each other, both of these sides. So after the success of Star Wars, we get, you know, a pretty initial draft by Lee Brackett, who actually died of cancer in 78, but had kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the film that we've seen. I want to call it the skeletal structure of the film. Uh, But Lucas was still kind of unhappy, so he took a few cracks at it. And he's the one that kind of came up with the twist that we'll save for the 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 end of the episode but he kind of helped flesh it out and then it was at that time when they had teamed up with Kasdan and we talked about him with Raiders of the Lost Dark uh brought him on to kind of really touch up and I can tell you exactly you know what what he touched up it's the character moments the Han and Leia intimacy the the stuff with the philosophy and the force and just kind of those like that's Kasdan's like MO and you know through that combination I think you just have something that's just very well structured you have characters that are constantly being chased you have little outs you have david and goliath like just seen with to to the nth degree here with this film and one of the things i like about it is the film's not dark for the sake of being dark i think that's a lot of problem with sequels is well we'll doing the next one we need to make it like very dour that's what sequels do This film's dark by means of the way the story progresses from beginning, middle to end, as, you know, things just look so bleak by by credits roll. And that's that's the story structure. That's the screenwriters. It's not the film. And I think that's a misconception in Hollywood and and certainly in sequels.
2: And even there, I think they balance it very well. And we'll get into this a little later when Luke meets uh, Yoda, but there's this is probably the funniest. Star Wars isn't known for being funny, sure. but it is probably the funniest of the original trilogy, and I think part of that is to try and balance out the darkness <coughs> of uh, this sequel that just kind of happens based on the way the story mm-hmm. um, kind of runs out. And so it never feels overbearing like a Man of Steel or something like that where it's like, oh man, I can't get out of this Just dull, depressing The uh, entire <laughs> time. Yeah,
1: exactly. All right, so the Battle of Hoth. You've mentioned Hoth. We've set up Hoth as a planet. We get this really great iconic, with something the Star Wars is known for, we need at least one space or some type of battle. We get a land battle here, which is, we don't see this often. I think this sequence is very well done. It's actually one of my favorites in all of the Star Wars canon because mm-hmm. It takes place during the day. So the complexity of these visual effects are is to do that. So when you have a space backdrop, the models and all the opticals like have like a black line on them. So you can tell an optical, or you can't tell it as well in space because it's masked by darkness. In the daytime, it's a lot harder to do. And I think you know you mentioned it well, like, you know the combination of the stop motion effects with scale models with the optical effects like they're just they're doing it all here in this one little sequence and I think it it still looks good yeah
0: i wish the godzilla films would go back and look at the importance of scale mm-hmm. in battle sequences like this there's no question i think it's at the height of the Empire's attack on Hoth, it's five ADATs? Is it four? However many Quite it is. Quite a few. <clears throat> it's no more than five, but whatever that is. And it's those and the scale and the footstep and the impact and the range and just the gauge of the ammunition versus, I don't know, 2,000 to 10,000 foot soldiers with little hand blasters and some snow speeders. Mm-hmm. And you get early on... What a snowspeeder does to an adat, it's like me throwing a dirt clod at the Great Wall of China. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have to be resourceful in the way that they go about it. And the reason that I say like with the Godzilla thing is, I don't think they've mastered the scale of the, those monsters. Yeah. Okay, so this is not a review of any Godzilla, but that film, not that this film, does that so well that you basically are left with, man, these blasters don't work. Let's try tripping. Mhm. And it's so smart and so brave little Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, 10 with one with one flat whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so so crafted. And you know what they're they're trying to save four cylindrical dishes that are only halfway buried in snow. Yeah. That's the base. Yeah. Jesus Christ.
1: It's nothing. You
0: have no shot. Yep. They're but they still are fighting for everything that they possibly can.
1: Yeah, it's very it's a very valiant effort.
0: And even like the... Let me give you one second, yeah. okay? And then even as the ad foot steps mm-hmm. on Luke's snowspeeder, which yeah. I love, yeah. you realize, crap, I didn't even think about that. There's the ray guns and then the power... And then you could just be crushed because mm-hmm. that thing's bigger and faster than you are. Exactly. So you're ants. Go mm-hmm. ahead and run with them. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: I was just going to say... I. I very much get the feeling when I watch this battle scene that, Oh, we've taken a step up, which is hard to do. And I think the fact that it's on the planet and mm. it's in, you know, bright, you know, conditions and everything like that, you very much, you know, say, okay, this is, we've, we've had a successful movie and now we've elevated to another level in terms of effects and uh, everything that's going on here. And, and, um, you know, I, I, I just really like the the way that the effects are handled like you said we were watching it today and you know it's a fairly old movie at this point and it still looks damn good so you know 40 years old next year exactly yeah. you don't watch many 40 year old movies where you're saying oh yeah these effects really hold up you mm-hmm. know it it's probably one of the best effect scenes in the entire series oh yeah but you didn't see us alone in the south
0: passage
1: she expressed her true feelings for me why why you stuck up half-witted scruffy looking nerf
0: herder who's scruffy looking
1: so let's pick it up a little bit the rebels have been dealt a fatal blow here on hoth they're kind of scrounging through the universe trying to escape and we're left with han leia chewie and c-3po in their escape and i'm going to say this right now and i, I, I stand by this 100 percent the sequence that follows this this chase through the asteroid field is my favorite sequence in any Star Wars film ever. Oh, wow, really? Yes. <laughs> Between them chasing and just like the, the the we get the the swipe and it's the Falcon by being chased by like two Star Destroyers. There's there's no chance. They're just like let's get out of here. And then something we've talked about before, Matt, kind of off mic is. You know, you know, the outs like like an easy out to me in Star Wars is just the Crux's hyperspace light speed. Just get out of here. What they've set up so well earlier that we didn't talk about is the Millennium Falcon is just breaking down on like every front right now. They're putting wrong cables in wrong areas like it can't be trusted. And for one thing that in thor ragnarok that we praised that film was the best thing that could have happened to that character was get that damn hammer away from him mm-hmm. and then he gets back mm-hmm. but it, it it makes it more vulnerable mm-hmm. more resourceful and i that that's hyperspace in this film to me is man that's a true bucket of bolts they have to be a lot more clever with the way that they hide the way that they elude, the way that they attack the empire and again we're touting the effects this chase through the the asteroid which fairly untouched from in the special editions uh man it looks great it's exciting the music and them hiding in hiding in the in the asteroid this is an exciting sequence for me and, and harrison ford also is just cranking on all cylinders in this film plug the professor back into the into the hyperdrive like he's got a, he's got a quip for everything but it it's just part of his character like he's really on it in this film
2: um to the point Matt was making earlier, too, this just illustrates the fact that you go from conflict to conflict to conflict. There's no let-up. We just finished this massive battle that was probably larger in scale than anything we saw in Episode 4. Yeah. And you go straight into an asteroid field, which is something I've never seen before, mm-hmm. you know, when I first saw this movie. Mm-hmm. And there's just no let-up, you know. It's one thing after another. So, I mean, if you're bored in this film, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It's, It's yeah. really just a high-paced...
0: Um, high stakes game that they're in the middle of. Mm-hmm. When Luke's rescued off of Hoth and put into that water chamber in the base and ne- I do mended back what the, the the water medicinal whatever the hell the thing is right. I think With it's called drug.
1: a bacta tank. I think. Fine. Okay, the bacta tank, <laughs> the jelly tank.
0: It struck me, and that's pretty early on in the film. Like already at that point in the film. How trapped, and by trapped I mean how encapsulated everybody's been in this movie. So just take Hoth, for example. You're stuck. Mm -hmm. Like the walls are closing in. And then Luke gets put in the cave ice-containing element from the wampa. Walls are closing in. Mm -hmm. Like how trapped and restricted on Incarbonite. Almost a little claustrophobic. Very claustrophobic. The X-Wing and the Swamp. I have a whole list of these, which I'm not going to go into. But this, I think, is a time to sort of talk about this bit. Mm -hmm. They escape the asteroid field into what looks like a hole in another asteroid. Mm -hmm. Only to find out that now they are again trapped. And I mean physically restrained in the belly of the whale. It's Jonah in the belly of the whale. Mm -hmm. So then we're drawing on some, some, some biblical stories here that we can all sort of remember. And if you don't like that, then Pinocchio works too. Yeah. And again, we, we see this over and over and over. Like you said, the hyperdrive doesn't work. So that essentially has become the default base for the Rebel Alliance now, the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. And it's at 60% capacity, maybe. Maybe
1: that. He literally turns it on and has to do the fawns to it to get it to go back on. <laughs> One thing after another, the walls
0: continually close in on these people. And to be as on the nose as you can get, Han eventually is encapsulated himself Mm -hmm. and that may not even be the worst of it because at least he's he's in a state of stasis but going to somewhere like this happens over and over and over and over again and there's never a moment where they're not not only in harm's way but the walls around them aren't closing in the movie just goes from one trap Mm -hmm. not to be too admiral akbar on you here to another trap and they are living from moment to moment The one thing that
2: I do think is important in the way they wrote this story, though, is that they do give, you know, our heroes little victories here and there. You know, in the battle on Hoth, they do take down a few of the walkers. You know, in this asteroid field, Han is really getting the best of the Star Destroyers following him because he's such a good pilot. Mm -hmm. So it prevents the movie from getting this, like, ominous, you know, overly dark tone, you know, they're running from issue to issue that they can't seem to escape. Like you said, the walls are closing in, but there's still some hope there. And I think that's an important um, thing that they did when they wrote this film is not to make it mm-hmm. overly, you know, oppressive in terms of how much the
0: empire is is winning um, in in terms of this film. Mm-hmm. Let me yeah. say one thing, but I promise I didn't cut you off. Mm-hmm. But just in the first act of the film, yeah. I took some notes on this, and I just want to talk about for me where all of these moments of trappedness show up yeah. or restraint show up yeah okay so just hoth in and of itself mm-hmm. you're trapped by the, the environment and that's one thing this movie also does really well is it uses the environment of consequence like you said earlier okay we already talked about the mouth of the space worm we talked about luke being trapped by the wampa uh luke in that medical chamber the whatever you call it back to tank or mm-hmm. whatever um the asteroid field uh luke being put into a tauntaun again like, restrained inside, like physically restrained inside yeah. a Tauntaun. Mm-hmm. The foot from the eight, from the ad, ad about to crush the snow speeder. It's just one thing at the base that they're on that's collapsing around them as Vader shows up. It's one thing after another. And like you said, the word is out. Mm-hmm. They are just eliminated, eliminated, eliminated to where it's about this mm-hmm. or its curtains for two hours in this oh, film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It just that's it there's nowhere else to go i cut you off you're gonna say something
1: no so what the, this this perfectly sets up you know our second act of the film but also claustrophobic intimate environments and then to me what to play with what i think is the biggest strength of this entire film which is its direction but uh, by irving kershner because now we have these small environments whether it's the whatever uh engineering chamber in the millennium falcon for moments with han and leia between Yoda and Luke as they're training in his hut with uh, Vader and his Emperor. I think we got three big ones happening here. But you have a director that understands how to get the most out of his his actors and to stage it properly. And you can see this on the behind the scenes footage. Lucas is, as a director, as a filmmaker, is just trying to get the shots and just kind of like hope that the film's a success. Now, after you've had success, Now you can really stretch this out and really develop some, I think, some really strong threads with these characters and give us a reason to care uh, Mm -hmm. uh, about them. What I like about Empire Strikes Back so much and why I'm just going to say it right now, this is my favorite film in the entire Star Wars canon, is it's the second act of this trilogy. It feels bigger than A New Hope, but scale wise, I don't think its story is as big as the quest in A New Hope. That's the quest to steal plants to steal a Death Star. To me, this is you know characters on the lam hiding, um, trying to find knowledge, trying to find fugitives. It's smaller, but it doesn't feel small. And that's directing. That's that's that. I don't think this could have been handled by by Lucas. This this would be maybe a disaster if he had stepped back in there. So, Irvin Kershner was actually one of his USC professors when he was going to film school. Actually, offered him the chance to to direct this and we ask like what else has Irving kershner done like the only thing i could tell you he did was robocop 2 and that's like not a great film but i think he understood enough about a filmmaking setting the stage but also actors and that comes into play in the i love you i know scene much later totally improvised line that he he encouraged the actors to do which was non existent in the prior film
2: and there is a risk here to splitting up the the main three characters, right? Say so they've been together for good chunks of yes. the star Wars universe at this <laughs> point. And by splitting them, sending Luke off one way and princess Leia and Han another way, you know, if the acting dialogue writing is not in place, you know, that could really go off the rails. You mm-hmm. lose, you know, the story moving forward potentially. And it's handled very well in terms of the ancillary characters that they bring in, such as a Yoda, Um, and, um, it's just really, really well-written, well-acted. And, and that keeps this movie moving forward. Um, when there was a big risk that it could have, you know, the second they all diverge, it could have gone off the rails if that wasn't
0: handled well. Yes. (laughs) Perfectly
1: said. Excellent. Yeah. So let's kind of piggyback on the, on the Yoda moment. Let's talk about this character and the arrival to Dagobah to complete Luke's Jedi training, played by Frank Oz, who went to the Jim Henson School of Puppetry and, and voice acting, and again, just kind of the, the appreciation I have for practical effects. Like in the prequels, he became a CGI glob. Here, it's it's something that there's a timing to making a puppet speak and do the voices of it. Like that's that's a performance in and of itself.
2: Yeah, I mean the creation of the puppet, um, the puppetry itself, the acting that goes behind that. Is I think a lost art in Hollywood, and everyone, everyone that loves Star Wars, I think appreciates the realness of the original trilogy when it comes to these characters, and that's (laughs) part of why the prequels aren't nearly held in the same regard because it becomes this impersonal, you know, computer-generated creature, synthetic. that happens afterwards and you know potentially the increase in high definition screens and that sort of thing has led directors to move away from puppetry and that sort of thing but the original trilogy and especially these scenes with yoda really make you wish more directors did that even today it just creates so much more
0: authenticity with the movie than you would get otherwise well matter has volume yeah mm-hmm. and Algorithms don't. Yeah. No matter how well rendered and how many pixels there are, they don't have volume. Mm-hmm. Yoda has volume because he actually has has volume. He's matter. I'd like to tie a bit of this back to sort of that idea, like it's all closing in. Like just think about how we arrive at Dagobah. Your X-wing is submerged in the swamp. But it's gone. You don't know who or what the heck you're looking for. You have a very limited geographic space that you could go to because it seems to be water. And we established pretty early on there's some Dagobah alligator in there. <laughs> and then to create the walled, trapped piece, R2-D2 gets eaten. I'm going to continue. You have a limited supply of food. It's, it's, again, the closing in of all things that are Empire and non-Empire, but they're all against you. And then this little weirdo shows up, who we don't know is Yoda yet, and he starts taking your food and thrashing your camp, and it's a little bit kind of cute. And I give Luke the patience that he shows Yoda that Yoda doesn't mostly offer him, in my opinion, through his Jedi training. But to that, as we get into the Yoda and the Luke's development as a Jedi Knight here, I really do feel, and we kind of made, at least I made light of it when we were watching the film this time. I feel it just about any time, and maybe even a couple times. Yoda has already given up on Luke. Mm-hmm. He's too uh, he's too old. He's too grouchy. He's trained too many Jedis to watch them go the way to the dark side or it just didn't work out. Like, Yoda's done. Mm-hmm. Yoda's the teacher in year 26 when they could have retired at year 25. He's just done. Yeah. Luke makes the littlest mistake. He can't, God forbid, Luke can't lift the X-Wing out of the swamp. <laughs> Yoda essentially throws a fit and then shows him, like, puts his balls on the table and says, What's up, young man? Mm-hmm. And now, again, so if this is who's going to train Luke and at any moment he's ready to pull the plug on it and go elsewhere, the walls, mm-hmm. the outs are decreasing by the minute.
1: And I like this training. And I think this might be one of the, the worst cheats of the prequels was to me, Jedi training there as you're young and you just deflect lasers with balls like we never see true Jedi training in those films. And to me, it was so organic it's using the environment. It's using philosophy. It's using, you know, your wits versus your 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 strength. And I think there was a real kind of a uniqueness to that. And I, I wish they would that that would have been developed more. Like, had it had Yoda get here, like he should have just been a, a a thing that lived on this planet and that was his job. Like the Jedi's have to go there and get their training. Like that that should have been what a Yoda was.
2: Yeah, and I I love 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 this sequence with yoda um obviously this is one of my favorite parts of the movie and it has kind of different acts within itself you know at first he's this um he kind of reminds you of someone's grandpa that's lost it a little bit in the head when he first gets introduced which is a nice moment of you know humor in the middle of an the walls collapsing in, like you're saying, you know, and he hasn't seen a person. I think we mentioned this while we were watching the movie. He hasn't seen a person in who knows how long. So mm-hmm. his brain's probably a little yeah. uh, mushy. It's like, in gra- terms- <laughs> it's
1: like gravy. Yeah. yeah um, like borderline so Alzheimer's. It, it
2: makes sense. But he's also feeling out Luke to mm-hmm. see what he has in this potential <laughs> That's good. student. Right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he switches to, you know, the conversation with Obi-Wan and everything like that. And, I think to your point, Matt, you were you were saying, man, he gives up on Luke really quickly. To me, part of that is I think he knows what they're up against, and there's really not many potential Jedi left in the universe at this point. Mm-hmm. So, um, the fact that he's getting Luke, this kind of whiny twenty-some-year-old person with no training, no yeah. you know mental toughness to speak of in regards to his makeup. Uh, is probably a little defeating to Yoda you know they already lost 30 some years ago with a full you know array of Jedi and here's Luke who's his new hope uh, grabbing from the first movie and he's really not impressed (laughs) is what it comes down to and I agree he probably gives up a little quickly but the stakes are pretty high and I think part of that dynamic is to show you better succeed or We're toast, you know, this is all we have left and um, there's not much left there. And and I think that kind of plays to that whole dynamic. But I very much love the evolution of this scene from, you know, the old silly grandpa Yoda all the way through the teacher that comes uh, later.
1: Yeah, it's your grandfather who's going to like, you're like, got your nose. (laughs) But then he's like giving you some really good life advice later on.
0: He's seen a lot of shit,
1: so to speak. <laughs> yeah. so. You know,
0: it's fair for Yoda to be jaded. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from the legacy of, not only is his son dead, but his grandson is even in worse shape if we're talking about who trained who, Ben mm-hmm. to Anakin. Mm-hmm. So he's looking at it, and he's like, well, Ben was a much better student than, than Luke. Frankly, Anakin was probably more steely than Luke, a little more maybe hot-tempered. And if this is my legacy, if this is my coaching tree— it's all of the coaches who have coached under Bill Belichick that went to go take their own teams that never found success
1: Romeo Cornell we could
0: go on you yeah. know, Matt, you know Matt Patricia we could go on and on and on with like sure. the three never ends yep. and mostly that's because you know they don't have Tom Brady but that's that's a, that's a sports <laughs> discussion for another day yeah I've often thought about what the force is mm-hmm. in realistic modern life like to, like in rea- reality I think the force is the, the soul The undefinable thing, the spark of life that gives us reason to exist that shouldn't be there because there isn't any rational explanation as to why the first transmission of energy occurs and all that function. It's the soul. So we just assign it to the soul. If you take a third of the movie and you develop the idea of the soul, then guess what your movie has, guys? Soul. Mm -hmm. And this movie has a better river of soul running through it than I think any of the other versions in this series. And for as much as I was sort of teasing about Yoda and I I still also do love that sequence. I just feel like, man, Luke, any minute this dude's going to tell you to fucking beat it. (laughs) Yeah. It creates like, you got to work hard. Mm -hmm. You got to be strong. You have to be courageous. All of these things that we assign value to in modern day life that are so hard to do. Mm -hmm. And they're playing out on the screen in what's called the force but it's the soul of humanity. And that creates a context in the film that makes you want to pull for the good guys. Mm -hmm.
1: And he's not the only one we're introduced. I think one of the other big strengths of this film is just the assortment of legendary players that are introduced in this single entry. So now we got the Emperor and then Boba Fett coming up. So let's kind of talk about them for a bit. This Emperor scene, Blake, I'll let you kind of explain both versions of it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I actually have the original theatrical release on dvd so as we were sitting here watching the remastered versions we were trying to compare one to the other and empire is fairly untouched in terms of the changes they made when they remastered Mm -hmm. Uh, but one of the most important scenes that is affected is the scene with the uh emperor um so in the original um it's actually a woman's face with chimpanzee eyes somehow placed on top um effects to to make this emperor looking feature with a man's voice so three separate things uh that's that's fucked up yeah it's a little weird (laughs) um whereas in the remastered versions they've actually gotten uh ian Ian mcdermott Mm -hmm. right um to uh come redo this scene um this conversation with vader uh there's a very subtle change in that um in the original um he doesn't allude so specifically to Luke being the son of Anakin Skywalker and there's a bit of a conversation with Vader kind of implying the twist that's going to come later that there's some relationship there Um, but in both scenes what's kind of interesting is it seems like Vader's kind of been tracking Luke on his own this was not something assigned to him and up until this point in the film um, that he should go seek out Luke and try and turn him to the dark side this is also where they get deployed to Hey, maybe we can convert him to the dark side and become even more powerful, and we'll probably have a few more points to this yeah. a little later. But. And that's
1: been set up in the prior film with like he's the Luke's the sole one that blew up the Death Star. The force is strong with this one. Like he can he, he can sense early on that this is something we haven't dealt with before. And it plays very well here in this sequence, and then it gives us a, another heavy that we're like, wait a minute, like who's this guy now? Vader's subservient to
0: this guy? Yeah. Oh my god. He looks like Satan. He does, <laughs> with his wrinkly face. Yeah. And
1: I gotta be real quick though. Yeah. Like he looked better though in that original version. It looks creepier. And maybe it's just because it's the chimpanzee <laughs> eyes or whatnot. Probably. It looks very. Ugh, yeah.
0: I think the character motivations in Vader then for the first time in this series might be questioned. He's sort of the force choke, it's going to be my way or the highway, mm-hmm. all in black badass that we've all come to know. Mm-hmm. When he has in the remade version of this compared, and I think that was cool to watch both of those like that. I actually do think in this particular case, the reimagined version short of the chimpanzees, I think the dialogue between Vader and the Emperor is more meaningful in the, in the reimagined version. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> If the Emperor is speaking about the son of Anakin Skywalker is is Luke Skywalker, unless this is an episode on Maury Povich. Yeah. Which is like who's your daddy? Yep. Vader knows. Mm-hmm. Vader doesn't know. And if we've seen the prequels, which I'm assuming everyone has, mm-hmm. you know Vader knows. Yeah. So he's been keeping this under wraps. And it does create, for me, a sliver of maybe there's goodness or at least oh loyalty to your offspring. Definitely. And that goes back to something I that for the first time in this... Like, I've, I've found myself... Well, I watch this movie a lot. And I it's the special effects. It's everything that the bad guys kind of win. There's a lot of reasons why I also find this by miles the best version in this series. Like, it's not even close And there's other films in this series I like, but this one's the the runaway winner. What is it? Mm -hmm. And maybe it is because if the Thanos snap is I'm going to take care of half the population, that'll protect our resources, and then we can survive and thrive as a population. Is this as simple as I just want to rule with my son? Mm -hmm. It's just family. Yeah. Because it is. And is it that is such a simple plan that most people that are fathers or parents want to go through it's just Vader's execution is fucked up Mm this is Robinson's execution is fucked up Thanos is right his execution's just fucked up Mm -hmm. and I think today literally when we were sitting there today Mm -hmm. I came to that and it may change from the next time I have about 50 theories I've already laid out in the first hour of this podcast but that's where I'm at with this right now and man I think the new imagined version of that and those Fifteen seconds? Yeah. Yeah. Of changed footage. And I it was think it's monumental it, for me. I
1: think it changes to the proceed viewing order as well. Mm-hmm. Like it's meant to be watched one through six versus four, five, six, fair one, two, three as well. Sure. So Matt, I'll let you take the next one. We are introduced to this slew of bounty hunters <laughs> that the Empire has hired to now hunt the Millennium Falcon down because they just can't find this ship now. <laughs> they did like some like crazy attack thing on it and now they're kind of latched onto the ship at this point so do you want to kind of run with that for a bit?
0: Silly for me to say that there's a part in this movie that kind of leaves me cold Um, but as you guys can see like I'm a huge Boba Fett fan Mm -hmm. and it's not that he might be one of the most misused characters in all of film and I would argue maybe Darth Maul is number two but that's a story for another day sure we have this, this cadre of villains bounty hunters that have been assembled to track down Luke, the, the like what's left of the Rebels. Yeah. It's Boss, it's Forlom, it's Zuckus, it's IG-88B, it's Boba Fett. It's all of those really cool bounty hunters up there. And none of them are really used. But it does also do one other thing that it does work for me. And that it shows how vast the expanse or reach of the Empire is. That if he can find Forlom weird robot guy on wherever the hell far reaches of the universe mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. and have him show up. It's either because he's got a lot of money, which is a very powerful thing, or he's scared to death, which is also a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And it, although I don't necessarily love the way all of those bounty hunters are are used and sort of just forgotten in kind of a Cantina-esque way with even not a Greedo other than Boba Fett, um, it does create a deeper instilled fear or respect for the Empire in me. I sure. see you nodding your head, so I'll let mm-hmm. you run with it. Yeah, and, and I think um, what
2: probably leads to you feeling that these characters are underutilized, I think it was put into the movie mostly to show the extent of the lengths Vader wants to go to in order to find them. He's not trusting his own you know, generals, admirals to well, catch in, these people. They're, inc- He's gonna, they're
1: incompetent.
2: Yeah, they're incompetent. He's going to enlist any and all methods to find these people. Yeah. And I think that's mostly why they put it into the film. It's just Bobo Fett... I think became such an interesting character that wasn't well explored that it's spun off a lot of other interest in the character, but at its core, that's probably, and and some of the dialogue with the Imperial officers saying, why do we have bounty hunters here? You know, like what are these scum doing here? Sort of thing. It's just showing the links Vader. He's not tied to protocol or anything like that. He wants to find this ship and he'll go to any lengths in order to do that.
1: And not called, Boba Fett in this film, as we established, he's just like, the bounty hunter can have, he's just known as the bounty hunter, which yeah, is true. very interesting. So let's get to Cloud City, Best Bespin for our final kind of act of the film. Introduced to yet another iconic character here, Lando Calrissian, played by Billy D. Williams. I've always been a big fan of Lando, but I was really picking up on stuff this time of of just, like, the history between Han and Lando, just him and Chewie saying, like, well, I'm sure he's forgotten about that. And it's what I like about this original trilogy. What hasn't been told to us that's now just being, like, milked for profit in present day um, is just, it, it just makes those characters so interesting. You want to know, but at the same time, you kind of don't want to know because it kills the mystery to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you you guys talked, but you both had a... Uh, cloud or you know, matt you had cloud city on your on your list like this this is such a unique whether it's the sunset or just the different types of speeders this is like i don't know like space Seattle like this is like <laughs> it's like a really unique place to, to to an extent and it's
2: somehow this outpost that hasn't been reached by the empire we've spent the whole movie establishing how vast the reachness mm-hmm. the reaches of the empire and somehow this place hasn't been effective it's kind of Just its own little world here where they're doing their own thing, mining the Tabana gas. um, But it's reached uh, very shortly thereafter, which kind of propels the plot forward um, beyond that. But just the concept of it, city in the clouds, it's not something you've seen before in a movie that, you know, (laughs) at at this point when I had seen Star Wars growing up. And so it's just very interesting overall. Well, we
0: think the Empire hasn't had their fingers exactly. in there yet, but we come to find out that maybe they've been there for a while and Lando's had to cut some deal with Vader yeah. in order to save his skin because the walls are closing in around him too. Can I also say the genius of casting Billy D. Williams yeah. as the cad who consistently hits on Leia yeah. is so well done because if you've seen Lady Sings the Blues, you know exactly who Billy D. Williams is mm-hmm. in film and who he'll always be to me. Yeah. And he plays it out as this cad, handsome, slick, mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah.
1: And... Well, it's j- just how he wears his cape. He just has, like, this cape, and he's just like, his arms are still free. It's just hanging from his shoulders. The like. galactic pimp, man. Yeah, <laughs> He shows up, and
2: he's really good at it. Yeah, And watching Han's reactions to all of his advances towards Leia is <laughs> funny. And it actually serves a purpose, too. It shows, despite all his toughness, he has feelings for Leia as well. And it comes across very clearly when he's always grabbing her arm when... Uh, Billy D. Williams, you know, character is is coming after uh, Leia in terms of his advances and stuff like that. So he very much is not uh, a fan of of uh, Lando's approaches. The
1: only thing I think that the solo film got right was the portrayal of Lando, because they really went with that galactic pimp aspect of.
2: And can I just ask this question? Yeah. Why was that not a Lando Calrissian film? <laughs> I did not need to see a Han Solo film. I would have one hundred percent liked to have seen a film of Donald Glover portraying Lando Calrissian. That's to me, a, that's so much more interesting because he's so undeveloped yeah. in the original trilogy. Yeah, that I would have, side note, but I would have loved to see that film
0: over huh. Han Solo. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You get pretty early on, even from the, the greeting on the tarmac between Han and, and Lando, there's a history between these two guys. Mm-hmm. They give each other some grief. You know, he calls him you all these things, and then that's the big hug. And they go back, like, they're boys. They go back <clears throat> to what you just said. Let's see the movie. Give me a galactic bromance about the adventures of those two guys. How about not the Parasect run? Because I fucking don't mostly care. yeah And said, let's go back and do that other thing. <laughs> so, Lando, you know, he, he could be kind of hateable in this because he sells out the good guys. But you sort of understand it's working against him and... What's working against him is the deal that he's made in order to save what he's established in trying to create an air of legitimacy about himself. Yeah. We get early on that he's struggling with with labor issues. I guess he's got a union thing that he's putting out, like uh, trade routes are going bad, which kind of plays in later to maybe or earlier to the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Since At least we're sort of yeah. nodding our heads to that. Yeah lando's tried to go straight yeah but there's a side of lando that was gambler i lost the millennium falcon in a card game sure i'm sure there's been plenty of women because he seems to know that playing field pretty well too and the way he handles leia Mm -hmm. he's tried to go straight and then the empire again no outs here we're gonna make a deal with you and vader so very succinctly tells him pray i don't change the deal anymore because the deal that lando's cut which he thought would at least save leia and chewbacca Mm -hmm. gone up in smoke too exactly exactly there's nowhere left to go. Walls exactly. are closing in. Yeah. And it's Luke's not even home yet. Oh, yeah. wait, but that's a trap set up for Luke, too.
2: And he very much goes through the exact same story Han goes through in episode four, right? Where he's kind of this only concerned about himself yeah. character sort of thing that over the course of the film very much changes towards, okay, the Empire is truly evil and I need to fight this. And it's just kind of showing how... Uh, the rebels kind of bring new people into the fold because the Empire's reach is so devastating and so... far reaching in terms of of people in this galaxy um and so you know he really goes through that exact same cycle of han where by the end you know he's on the good side and just takes him a while to get there
1: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. the the thieves scoundrels with hearts of gold is kind of how they really portray that
0: honor among thieves right Mm -hmm.
1: excellent so let's kind of set the stage for our kind of final confrontation we have this trap set up first they're going to test it on han solo this carbon freezing chamber and again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, great improvised line, like, I love you, I know. It's like, it's on t shirts now. It's so often quoted, but it's that's, that those are great moments between director and actor, and trusting you. That's totally what Han would say in that moment. It, he wouldn't say, I, I love you too. That's what was in the script. Like, this is understanding what you've established here. And maybe that's just Harrison Ford, and he just has kind of that, that knack. But I think it, Kirshner really set the, the, the playground, where like, Make this happen. You know these characters. Do it. You can. You can do it. Yeah. So I, this is. A, it's a great moment.
0: Honda didn't even crack a smile when he says that. He yeah. burns it at Leia, mm-hmm. and he's stoic, and he's okay in that moment. Mm-hmm. And what I love about it is she sort of acquiesces and kind of, yeah, you're right. By mm-hmm. not saying, God, even as you're about to be frozen, I still get the one. She's like, yeah, yeah. It's and real- he, as he's going down to what might as well be his death. That's mm-hmm. your final line. Mm-hmm. I know. Yep. Man, I hope. Part of me hopes that that's actually scripted dialogue and part of me also hopes that that's Han knowing that character well enough that he just ad-libs it. Either way it works, Mm -hmm. but it is maybe, well, not maybe, it's a true moment of great dialogue writing, Mm -hmm. I know. Yeah, and so... um
2: In some research I was doing before we did the podcast on this today, it seemed to, it was not the original writing, the I know. It was not ad-libbed either from, there were conflicting stories about it, but most of them seemed to center around uh, Harrison Ford and the director came to a decision um, right before the scene was cut that they were going to change the line. So it wasn't an on-the-spot thing, but it was something Harrison Ford um, initiated that change. Uh, It is a funny line because diehard Star Wars fans Mm -hmm. love that scene, love that line. Mm -hmm. It's so uh, Han Solo to them. I bet if you did a poll of people that have seen this movie, men would love that scene, you know, have favorable views of it, like 99% to 1. And women, it's probably not quite so much the other way, but much more negative because they're like, what an asshole, you know, this guy can't even tell. This woman that he loves that he loves her at the end, but uh, it is very iconic regardless of which way you fall on that spectrum.
1: That's one of the reasons I love mo- just movies as a, a film as a landscape too. That's organic filmmaking to me, like to me just following a script and just kind of abiding to that Bible is good. But like to me, that's that could become very assembly-like in nature. You like there's room to change things in there. If not, we wouldn't have such great iconic moments. Like I'm walking here, I'm walking, totally just done there in camera. Like it's my favorite part. One of my favorite parts uh, about filming, just done so well here. So he's taken by by the bounty hunter Boba Fett to to Jabba. Again, we're just just these names. It's just this mystery that we maybe don't want to know about we'll talk about that later but now we have the ultimate trap set for luke skywalker here in the carbon freezing chamber this blue orange hued you know battle arena that we're going to have between him and vader and this this has always been one of my favorite lightsaber duels just because of everything going on here at this time i mean vader's just so and if he truly does know this is his son at this point which he does um He's not going hard on him at first. I mean, he's literally going one-handed with the lightsaber. Man, I can take you, but I'm not trying to kill you either type of a thing. It's that, a, it's like a seduction of sorts.
0: That's exactly what I thought. It's the dad and the kid on the playground playing basketball where the dad's playing with one hand behind their back mm-hmm. and could just swat that stuff out of the sky anytime the kid tries. You know, but kind of le- is letting them yeah. kind of win. Because mm-hmm. you're right. Mm-hmm. He's going at about... Forty percent, yeah. And Luke's getting his ass handed to him at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I notice he turns it up a notch. So as the scene progresses and Luke flies out the window, that's like he pops it up to like a sixty or sixty-five when he's throwing shit at him. But I think he pulls it at like at an eighty when he's in that room. And I just love that shot of like it's Vader just towering over Luke and literally backing him down into a corner, um just really showing him. And he tells him, he's like, "Don't go the way Obi Wan did. Because like you'll die."
0: Think about this in dodgeball. Mm-hmm. This is weird, but ride right with me here, fellas. The film or the sport? No, no, the sport. Okay. <laughs> if you're playing dodgeball and someone is throwing at you, what's the worst place to be? In a corner, right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that's what's happened. So if the ability to dodge the strikes of dad with who someone who is much more adept at lightsaber battles than you are is limited, then... By the distance or the geography of what the space is, because there's a bunch of shit flying all around you. Yeah. Guess what's closing in on you again? The corners. He has let the even more
1: out. They're yeah. gone. He backs himself up onto that tiny little platform. I don't know where he'd think he was gonna go. Out the glass. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like literally, I'd rather fall off this cliff mm-hmm. than face the wrath of my dad. Mm-hmm. And my question is in this is how far is Vader willing to let him go? Because I bet if one of those flying things cracks Luke upside the head and he gets knocked out the glass, Mm -hmm. I think Vader probably force lifts him back into it with some line of, you're either on my side or I'm letting you go. Mm -hmm. It's just such a, a dominance, a display of dominance From dad to son. Mm -hmm. And Luke is so, so, so outclassed in this scene. Mm -hmm. This scene's so
2: important, too, because the prequels get real heavy on lightsaber duels, right? But this is kind of the original um, right here. I mean, God bless Alec Guinness, but he really didn't have it in him to uh, portray Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader in a meaningful way, right? He didn't know what
1: movie he was in.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you know, this is the first time we see a full on all out, you know, lightsaber duel, which has become iconic and, you know, quickly associated with Star Wars as a whole. And, um, you know, I won't really add too much more in regards to the dominance aspect. It's like every time Luke seems like he's doing okay, Vader pulls out some new trick or it's like, yeah, I got like 20 more of these in the bag. You're you're not getting out of this unscathed you know
1: it feels so organic too it just feels like this is how people would fight with swords in the prequels it's just such it's such a dance and so it's too well choreographed where it just looks yeah they practiced that for months obviously like here it just feels like yeah you're in that situation this is how you're gonna do it and
2: to build on the point of why yoda was so you know distraught that he was leaving training in the first place. Okay, you, it very it becomes quickly established okay, Luke can, you know, wave his lightsaber around, he seems to have mastered the physical aspects okay, but then Vader starts throwing stuff with the force at him. Mm-hmm. It just becomes so clearly so clear how outmatched he is very quickly. There's all these skills and powers in relation to understanding the force that Luke hasn't even got a clue about, you know, up to this point and Vader's a master of it. So mm-hmm. what chance does he have?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the other really corner that Luke is painted into in this is as he leaves Yoda, the line that they give him is Don't give in to aggression and hatred, only use the force for defense. I would just pose in this moment when Luke is getting it handed to him by Vader, what part of that defense is working? <laughs> the only way he gets out of that is through aggression. So, we're, again, no more outs. Like, even mm-hmm. what my mentors have told me be peaceful, yeah. dodge. You can't like yeah. you have to go give it to him or flee, which uh, we're going to talk about, obviously he flees, or there's mm-hmm. no more movie yeah. I don't even know i I don't even know if the advice that Yoda gives Luke is a hundred either. Mm-hmm. can we talk about i I know we're going back, but I really wanted to talk about one thing, go ahead. and I want each of the three of us to do this, okay. Let's talk about the takeaway because this matters in this moment right now. Mm-hmm. The takeaway from Luke in the cave where he comes and cross on Dagobah, mm-hmm. where he runs into Vader and decapitates him, only to find himself. Yeah, can you talk about that? And you talk about, and then I'll talk about that. Yeah. go ahead, Jesse. I'll just kind
1: of sum it up with one phrase: is Luke is his, is his own worst enemy. Right. Yeah.
2: I I don't have anything to add to that. That's very yeah. clearly the point. There's there's some other parallels there, just kind of alluding to the potential relation between him and Vader in that scene as well. But um, yeah, it's very important for portraying the conflict that's going to come later.
0: I think it's there's an inevitability about yeah, that. Definitely, <laughs> you're gonna. We all do grow up to be a version of our parents because yeah. that's our DNA. So where's Luke gonna go mm-hmm. if you use Peace or flight in this moment, it's curtains. And it is, because he literally gets his ass handed to him in this scene. Mm-hmm. And that's only because Vader's still trying to win him over. If you submit to the dark side and use force and aggression, then you become your dad, which is what you're supposed to become anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is the advice that your mentor gave you, and it's clearly incorrect. Luke, guys, mm-hmm. is at this moment in this movie. For the, I've sworn a lot in this podcast. He's fucked. Yeah, <laughs> he is. Mm-hmm. Where's he gonna? There's, there's not a single out other than run at this moment.
1: Yeah, and he's about to be dealt this true revelation that he is the son of Darth Vader. No, I am your father. Let's talk about this moment for a little bit. Um, I'll let you go first, man. I actually want to hear what this was like the very first time because you got it fresh, right out of the box, revelation of sorts. Is
0: this 81? 80. So I'm seven. Mm -hmm. So I saw this in the theater. And I can tell you, me and my little friends on the playground, this is all we talked about for a year was, (laughs) is he really Luke's dad or not? There's no way. Nobody wanted to. Admit that this was in fact his father, because Darth Vader was the worst villain that had ever set foot in any of our lives, mm-hmm. and Luke was probably the greatest hero that we'd all seen at the same. Oh my God, their family! Sure, that moment in this movie mm-hmm. hit me like a ton of bricks, it just devastating. Like there was, I remember mm-hmm. eight mm-hmm. the gasp in the theater when he said, "Luke, I am your father." People literally went, "What." is such a great twist um like monumental is the jv of what this was in the varsity of mm. moments in history mm-hmm. okay so that's where I, that's what i would answer that with okay. huge yeah jesse brother we debated that for a year and a half on the playground yeah we had like socratic seminars which i didn't even know we were doing with inner circle outer circle and who agreed and who didn't <laughs> on the the legacy of luke and, and Vader's father mm-hmm. patriarchal relationship and you had
1: to wait like three years to get any type <laughs> and
2: of... and that wait is something that i did not have to experience because i'm i'm much younger so when i saw these i saw them as episode four through six a marathon mm-hmm. in one day and so the i never had this year plus suspense of is that really his father you know i i Heard stories of people saying like, "Oh, I didn't quite trust that that was really the case." I went straight into Return of the Jedi right after popping out the VHS for Empire Strikes Back, what a great feeling. so I didn't have. I uh, didn't have to wait three. I years. didn't have the wait um, <laughs> that you know
0: was experienced when it originally came out. Yeah, sure. Nobody wanted to believe that. Yeah, nobody wanted to believe yeah. that Vader was Luke's dad. But going back and watching it again. Mm-hmm. They give you all the evidence in the film yeah, you need that they he does. I mean, he, <laughs> just the translation, mm-hmm. and not to be too um, what's that? Anna Kendrick movie? Um, pitch Perfect. Not to be too pitch perfect, but yeah. it literally is the translation of father. Definitely, father, Vader, mm-hmm. right? And then when he, Vader goes, son, and mm-hmm. Luke wakes up, dad. Yeah, <laughs> they're giving it to you, man. Mm-hmm. We just didn't want to.
1: I like this moment. What I don't like about it is what it sets up for the rest of the Star Wars franchise, because it works so well and it's so out of left field, but set up very well, is that everything then had to become so familial with this series. And it, it, it just makes me beg the question how small is this galaxy where like all these people are related and all going through their issues and drama and trouble and where it's going through like five or six people it's it's the problem with the new films as well and one of the reasons why i liked last Jedi is it it took chances to move away from that kind of idea of you're not related to anybody like like the force isn't inherited through bloodlines it's it, it can be it's almost like like Mutations in X-Men.
0: Look, Jesse, the truth is the Skywalker quaintness in the Star Wars universe Mm -hmm. makes the Kennedy reality in modern-day America seem expansive. Yeah. Everyone's a Skywalker in some regard to the Force. And to shrink it a little bit more, Mm -hmm. the scene when Luke leaves Dagobah in the X-Wing and Yoda gets the one moment where the walls don't close in and says, there's another. Yeah. Everyone in the world knew who they were talking about. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't going to be Han yeah. or Chewie. Yeah. It could have been Yoda. He wouldn't speak in the third person about himself. Yeah. Who else is there? Yeah, exactly. Well, so yeah. it shrunk the universe even more. Yeah,
1: and we see it in the next scene as he's dangling from the rafters of <laughs> Cloud City, yeah. saved by a sister through this the forced telekinesis that, that those individuals have. But I like this little bit, this kind of chase, you know, like now our team is just so shaken up. We have Lando in the seats, the ship's still broken, Luke's lost an appendage, he's learned this horrific truth, really upset with Ben Kenobi at this point, like, you should have just been up front with me Betrayed. right from the get-go. Yeah, I do feel a little betrayed. Uh, we're We're very backed into a corner at this point, and we do finally escape, but... I can't imagine being a child in 1980 sitting in the theater just being like, oh, my God, the stuff left unresolved. Stuff with the dad, Hans and Carbon, how are we getting him back? What's going to happen with the two? Who's the other? other? How are they going to play that out? Like, this film just sets up so much stuff for Return of the Jedi, and some of it plays and some of it doesn't in the next entry. But, man, what a long wait that must have been. That's all I have to say Uh, to that. It (laughs) was arduously
0: long. mm -hmm. And then, of course, when it came out that Mm summer— Was sold out the first couple times I went. I had to wait a couple weeks just to get a damn ticket because it was always sold out. Mm-hmm. So that made it even worse. And to make things even more troubling, my best buddy at the time somehow saw it opening night. And so we had the conversation without having the conversation <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: Are you sure? You want Me to tell you? Yeah. Uh, That's true. That's oh, tough. You, you want to know how I actually found out what the truth was? This yeah. is this is so gutless on my. <laughs> Go ahead. I bought the book.
1: Like the novelization?
0: Yeah, they had like a, mm-hmm. a video-imaged book of. Oh, okay. And I bought that at the Scholastic Book Fair <laughs> before the movie came out, so I you kind of knew. Blew it for myself a little bit, um, so yeah, I kind of took the chickens away out because I couldn't wait any longer.
1: That's a hard wait. It really it is, especially because well, Victor,
0: God, Victor's gone. God bless you. Dude. Yeah, um, Victor wouldn't tell me without. Are you sure you want me to tell you? Mm-hmm. So yeah.
1: So let's set up our final scene of the film. We have the rebels, whatever's left of them here, floating through space. Luke got his new robotic hand. And just something that's just always just so weird to me. Just Lando in the sea. But he's wearing Han's clothes. Like, this, it's so... <laughs> Obviously, he didn't have anything to wear and went through Han's, like, wardrobe. But, like, it's just, like, it's bizarre. And I've, it's always stuck out to me. It's, like, that one of those, like, weird things. Like, What? I think I wrote "WTF" on here. Like, why is L- Lando doing that? But they're they, they've developed some plan to go get Han. We'll rendezvous on Tatooine, and this is kind of it. Let's hope this works, and and we're out. Like, there there's it's kind of hopeless at the end to an extent.
2: Yeah, and this ending is very different from the other movies in the series. Um, I think we it's becoming clear all of us very view this one um, in very high regard. But one thing that does Limited a little bit is it very much is not the end of a story we talked about mm-hmm. a new hope being you know it could have ended there sure that would have been a great movie it would have been done return of the jedi ends the trilogy yeah this is very much a to be continued sort of ending
1: and you, um, and you have to be okay with that
2: which i like mm-hmm. movies that end that way you know the two towers the same way it ends kind of gloomy in the lord of the Rings series mm-hmm. and i I like that in movies sometimes, but you have to be okay with it because I could see a certain percentage of people kind of saying, okay, well, this isn't complete because I don't know the end of the story. And yeah. so it does li- leave in a not really a cliffhanger, but you don't know what's going to happen after this. Exactly. And so it's a bit different than the other installments.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So I think time now more than ever. Let's rate The Empire Strikes Back. We have Rock gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Blake, I'll let you go first.
2: Well, um, based on how much praise I've had for the movie throughout the prod- podcast, and we're not even done with that, uh, the nightcap question will hit on a little more. Um, pretty evident what I'd rate this, and that's top shelf, solid top shelf. There's no um, debate for me. You know, this to me is the best in the entire uh, Star Wars canon. Um, I love episode four, don't get me wrong, but um, there's just a number of things about uh, Empire Strikes Back that just take the um, Star Wars franchise to heights that in some ways lead it to the popularity it has today and also somewhat limit the ability to make movies from this point forward, because (laughs) everything sort of seems like a disappointment after this movie, and we've already talked about the Skywalker pieces of it, Mm -hmm. and there's a number of other factors related to the Force um, that perhaps constrain future filmmaking within the story, but in regards to how Empire Strikes Back, uh, comes across it, it's one of my favorite films period um, <laughs> and it is my favorite film in the star wars uh, franchise so easy top shelf for me
0: top shelf plus if that was a thing frankly yeah top shelf in any measurement category i don't know where i would say well, here's one thing like i'll try to like be petty and say oh her white shoes should have mud on them which they should <laughs> okay because if they have a spot of blood they should have but whatever, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, in yeah, any yeah. measurement category, sure. yeah. there just isn't any way for me not to give this top shelf. Mm. Um, for me, it's also the best in what is a monumental legacy of film. That's an important franchise in film, mm-hmm. no question. It's the best. And there's some other okay, like New Hope is good. There's yeah. some other yeah. okay films in there as well.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not perfect. Yeah. Very few things are, but it is top shelf um it's probably in my i think maybe top 10 for you it sort of sounds like yeah, definitely. probably doesn't ascend to that quite place for me but it's it's top 50 like that's it's it's that's a, it's a pretty amazing film yeah
1: yeah and then watching it this time you know it just really gets me thinking just about sequels and how those work as a as kind of like a filmic device like the sequel that exists for story versus the sequel that only exists within concept do more of the same type yeah. type of scenario. Right. I don't know how you can't consider this to be. I know Godfather Part Two is it's a phenomenal film. Mm-hmm. This has to be, in my opinion, the best sequel ever made at a time when sequels weren't really a thing yet, like mm-hmm. the norm. Like maybe a Rocky Two and a Jaws Two, but this is better than those films uh the empire is just at an all-time threatening level everything from john williams music to the direction to the look it just looks so professional and everything's just clicking on all cylinders every aspect of this film we've talked about a lot of shitty movies on this podcast and a lot of great ones like alien raiders of the lost ark um being good uh th- I, matt i think this is this is the best film i think we have reviewed on this podcast in my opinion this is top shelf plus without a doubt a slam dunk it's the best film in in, it's the benchmark it's it is the problem with star wars is it's pretty good it's no empire though and i think that becomes the problem with return of the jedi which is this is just such an alley oop like we're giving you all this stuff to play with don't rim rock this thing and i think in a lot of instances i think i think they do that
0: um, well, Ewoks are terrible jumpers.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, yeah, without a doubt, Top Shelf Plus, my favorite, or I think the best film we've reviewed on this podcast. Luke, it is your destiny. right so that was that was a great discussion on on empire i had a lot of fun watching it with you like i don't think blake i don't think i've known you a long time personally and i don't think we've ever sat down to watch that movie together like
2: yeah i don't think
1: we have yeah so that was a lot of fun matt i don't think i've ever seen any star wars movies just like with us so it was fun to share that with you and kind of go back and forth while we were watching it It so yeah. yeah thank you for that so blake again uh the guest has to bring the nightcap question as well so why don't you send us out into our day
2: All right, so um, I was actually expecting us to... This question requires a bit of of introduction. I think uh, Empire Strikes Back, in my mind, has a scene in it, which we actually haven't talked about yet, so I'll give it as my answer rather than listing it here, um, that is perhaps my favorite scene for what I'll call a full cinematic experience. So when I watch movies, I like moments in film that capture every aspect of filming so great music great special effects great acting great story that can combine into moments in film that uh, maybe perhaps can't be enjoyed in other mediums you know you can get good acting um, in a scene in a play you can get good writing in a book Mm -hmm. but when you combine all those things I think you can really only absorb it in film Um, so my number one answer is going to be from this movie but I, I think we'll go top two here what are your guys's top two and i'm sure jesse you'll have like five honorable mentions here but, it's what uh, i do obviously that i'm not the only one that has
0: recognized
1: <laughs> yeah
2: you. what are your guys's top two full cinematic experience moments in film that kind of combine all of those aspects of filmmaking
1: i love this question i i think we're all going to have some pretty interesting entries matt i'm going to let you go first but we should do if someone takes it it's off the table
0: okay we okay. should do that I'm, I'm good with that okay so my number two yeah. is april comes she may montage in the graduate what's really really smart about that is the lyrics by simon and garfunkel present a passage of time as this affair is evolving between mrs robinson and ben braddock it's also set very smartly again a backdrop of the color black whether that be the headdress or the wallpaper or what have you and you get sort of how these two have now been carrying on for a period of time that is months and months and it's set up brilliantly bookended by two images in the pool uh, so that's my number two. The April come she may. Ben Braddock, Mrs. Robinson, affair sequence montage.
1: Is that Scarborough Fair that's playing over that? No, it's yeah. April come she may. Okay. Good. You want me to go next?
0: Yeah. Every other song in that movie is mostly Scarborough Fair. Yeah. But not that.
1: Like five different versions of oh it. Oh my gosh. Excellent. My number two. Again, we've talked about you know things that get me worked up emotionally, and it's rare for this to happen in film. But I think if it's if it's handled the best, it's at the end of the first Rocky film. Here's a, a moment where we've had we've followed this underdog through just trials and uh, and tribulation and he's lost the fight at the end of the film. He's gone the distance, but he doesn't care. He just wants Adrian. And through the whole film of Rocky you're just like man does Adrian even really like Rocky like like this is weird. but as she starts coming towards him and their shouts get louder and louder, And that music that gonna fly now just starts kind of picking, picking up a little bit. And I just love the moment. It's like, (laughs) what happened to your hat? I love you, Rocky. Like she's totally into him. And this is how we end the film on a freeze frame. And it was never about the fight. It was about finding this and I love it. And it's, it almost wants to well me to, to a tear in my eyes. It's music. It's the acting. It's just the, it's the setting, this boxing ring, um, my second favorite cinematic moment.
2: All right. So uh, mine here, and, and once again, I, I'm not saying this is necessarily a favorite scene. There's a lot of scenes in film that mm-hmm. are, are incredible, but something I distinctly remember growing up when I saw it, and maybe this has to do with when I um, was growing up, was the dinosaur reveal in Jurassic Park. And overall, you know, that movie eventually kind of goes into just kind of a, run from the dinosaurs sort of thing towards the end. But I, I think the original scene where um, all of our main characters are first seeing the dinosaurs and then you as the viewer are exposed to perhaps the best special effects of the time.
1: You had okay. seen up to that
2: time. Up to, up to that time mm-hmm. with an absolutely phenomenal score by John Williams. And there's a theme here that I like. John Williams and Hans Zimmer, I think, are the two composers that
1: they get you worked up.
2: They can get me into a scene, you know, just from the music, regardless of what's even on the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just something I had never experienced before. I had never seen before, and if I read the book, I couldn't. I, I'm not terribly imaginative. Imaginative, I couldn't have, you know, dreamt something up similar to what was portrayed to me in the film, and it just all combines to this emotional moment that. I hold an extremely high regard. So that's my number two.
1: It's a good one. That is a good one. That's, all a, right. that's a dinosaur. <laughs> all right, Number one. Mean, number one.
0: People are going to roll their eyes when I answer this one. <laughs> Red Nandy and hugging on the beach in Wataneo at the end of Shawshank Redemption. The yep. best ending in a film of all time. Mm. Completely satisfying. Uh, thank God... Where do you go? It's perfect. Mm -hmm. The score is really important. Um, Yeah, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. It's it's everything that that movie led up to and all the hell that every character in that film went through paid off in a bird's eye view from 100 yards away watching two men or two friends on the beach find each other again. Mm -hmm. And start all over at the very end of their lives. And I think there's two moments from that
2: film that I would honestly consider consider honorable mention. It's the one you mentioned there and the one when he Rockwell. escapes, um, just that whole sequence. Is so, you know, when he's sitting in the rain, you know, absorbing his freedom, those both came up when I was thinking. Of, or even the
1: vinyl scene when he's in yeah. the, in the office with Warden's office and just kind of playing the music for them. Uh, that's good. What I like about both of your scenes, Matt, is your your scenes are fairly free of dialogue, actually. They're just a series of shots of sorts. or Like you said, from a bird's eye view, we never on film get to see the actual um, or hear the reunion of Red and uh, Andy Dufresne. Instead, we just kind of see it. But I think we get it just from that.
0: I cheated a little bit with The Graduate and the montage because it's not a specific moment. Yeah. It's moments. Yeah. But I'm going to. Kind of Matt's version of Jesse and cheat a little bit. Yeah. All right, number one, let's hear it.
1: Number one for me, again, just kind of looking at kind of an interesting era of like when Empire was made for like film and you know that kind of Spielbergian like type of excitement and joy you got from movies. Like there's a certain funness to it, and if we're talking acting, set piece, film or uh, music, like just the visual my number one has to be the clock tower from back to the future. Sending Marty McFly back to the future as doc fumbles about trying to get this. They got one shot at getting this thing back with the lightning strike and Alan Silvestri's score. Doo, 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 doo. You're just like, are they going to do it? Or what's going to happen? Like, and he's got to like swing down and like plug it back in. He's electrocuted, but they succeed at the end of the day. Like to me, Blake, I tried to grade these sequences. If it's a sequence that, literally makes gives me goosebumps and makes the hair stand up on my arm that's what i think a pure cinematic moment is that battle in yavin 4 or uh the, the death star last week is pretty damn close yeah, that's like, definitely very close. close but those are my two I, I love back to the future and i just that ending is I, I just love it
2: yeah that's a great answer um yeah to me it's the it's the scenes that you'd youtube on your own without watching the rest of the movie just to Get those goosebumps again. I think that's the perfect description of what I was going for with this question. Mm -hmm. So my answer, and it kind of allows us to end on a Star Wars theme, is what inspired this question, and we didn't actually talk about this scene on the the discussion of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The Yoda scene lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp is what inspired the question. To me, that's my Mm -hmm. single most... um, my single favorite moment in all of Star Wars, I think um, the combination of the, they're not, you know, to the level of effects of the rest uh, of Empire Strikes Back necessarily, but you still get some special effects there. You get Yoda discussing the Force in ways that we have not gotten in the past, and and, and we alluded to this in the past as you're first watching Star Wars, assuming you watched episode 456 mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. and not the prequels, you have n- you do not know the extent to which the Force and the powers associated with the Force are capable until you see that scene. Mm-hmm. That opens up a whole new realm of abilities that you did not know were possible. And I distinctly remember watching that as a kid and saying, wow, yeah. like Yoda, this little tiny Yoda... Uh, is able to lift this thing out of the swamp. The lessons about the Force within this little three, four-minute segment Mm -hmm. I think are the most influential to why Star Wars is as big as it is today. I think you can really point back to the Dagobah sequences for, you know, A New Hope would have led Star Wars to being a big deal. But why it has such a following today, I mm-hmm. think traces back to the pieces of the film in Empire that really go to the mystical aspects, the religious aspects mm-hmm. of the Force that are really uh, dealt with the best in the sequence of Empire. Um, and to me, you know, uh, the, the Yoda theme score by John Williams on top of the effects, on top of the... Just storytelling um, in that sequence is is my favorite moment in uh, the franchise and one of my favorite moments in all of film. And I think it just perfectly encapul- uh, encapsulates everything I want to see in a movie. You know, every single aspect of the filmmaking, even the acting by a puppet. It's a damn puppet is fantastic in that scene. Um, and so in some ways, I think it it's one of my favorite scenes. It also probably limits... Uh it's one of those things just like the Skywalker aspect that limit uh Star Wars movies in the future cuz they can't quite yeah. get a grasp on what is discussed in yeah. uh those those scenes on Dagobah.
1: Cheers to that.
0: I know you've got to have an audible mention. I do. I'll do it.
1: <laughs> one sequence that comes fairly close and it's I can make an argument for like the full 15 minutes but I'll just go with the kind of last minute is the ending of Whiplash too. Um uh, Andrew Neiman's final kind of like pat, 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 pat on the snare drum as Fletcher tries to bring more out of him as they close to extreme close ups of yep. their reaction to fit to cut to black is that's pretty remarkable, like filmmaking in itself.
0: You want to throw an honorable mention in
2: there? The honorable mention, um, I had a few, uh, just listing them one and I didn't include it for reasons of it not really being effects but the baptism scene in godfather i think is fantastic the organ playing in the background while the child's getting baptized and everyone's getting murdered all at the same time is is a fantastic scene. That, was what, that was what i was going to say too and then the other honorable mention would be inception actually the the scene where the inception actually occurs at the end of the mur- movie with killian murphy's um, pinwheel right? character the pinwheel he's pulling it out of the safe all the emotion he's going through while these different levels of the dream are like all converging onto one we're we're kind of two honorable mentions for myself
1: again why that film works so well and i'm sure we'll talk about it again one day on the show it's such a uh, film with such grand ideas and scope and ambition and what it comes down to the end is this little pinwheel object between father and son it's that that's that's pretty good
0: my two would be the very end of eyes without a face as Christiane is sort of very ghastly floating through the forest having done away with her father that'd be one oh gosh um I also like the baptismal scene from The Godfather a a lot. I almost feel like I felt like we had to do that just so we could mention that scene.
1: But what about Unbreakable, harkening back to episode one, where like now we know who you are. I know who I am. And it's like, it's Mr. Glass because the kids.
0: (laughs) Okay, so but that, you know, from in that movie, that's not the most memorable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's the train sequence mm. where he's standing in a Christ like pose and touching the people and like the, the use of color mm-hmm. and score in that would be That's good too. The one I'd probably choose from that film. Uh I'd be careful we could just go on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, there's so many options here. I like what you, it to two was kind of yeah. uh,
1: I like what you said though. Like that's hard to do on stage in a theatrical production and very hard to do while reading a, a book. Film presents a medium that is able to to use sight, sound. in in such a unique way. And I think that's why it's always been my favorite, you know, entertainment, you know, critique medium is just because you can do so many different things with that. All of the entries we use are so different in their own right.
0: Well, look, you and I might've gone through one together Mm -hmm. in hereditary. Yeah. That decapitation scene had a auditory effect on both of us. Mm -hmm. When that little girl's head gets knocked off by that pole in that car. Yeah. I, I lost my breath for a minute Mm -hmm. I think I might have even cursed and we had a what the right Yeah, like where do you stop Mm -hmm.
2: yeah to me film just has an ability and that's why I pose this question to like impact every sense that you have you know the sound the visuals the uh, evoking emotions and and so that that was kind of what inspired the question i think all the scenes we're talking about grab on different parts of that as the focus but um it's it's one of the only mediums that can really stimulate the the viewer in every single department when it comes to that
1: so. awesome well thank you blake thank you for coming on today and talking about empire strikes back yeah, with us blake. it's been a lot of fun uh and until next week we on the on the next uh train we have episode number six return of the jedi this will be an interesting one to say the least. There's a ton to talk about, maybe some good and some bad. But yeah, we're almost a week away from allegedly this final film in this Skywalker saga. So uh, yeah, until then, I got to get going. Uh, I got to go take a bath and a back, and a back to tank. Uh, my body's been hurting a lot lately. So it's all that working out I've been doing.
0: <laughs> my Tauntaun's freezing outside, so I'm going to go pick him up. Okay.
2: I'm going to go into my backyard and try and lift some pebbles with my mind like uh, Luke Skywalker. So. That
1: is certainly a unique way to zero-scape your backyard. <laughs> I'll just say that right now. Cheers, Rye Nation. We'll see you next week.
0: Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark.
1: Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, tune in, and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, is property of 20th Century Fox, Lucasfilm, and Walt Disney Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, may the Force be with you.
0: Why do you take this apart now? I'm trying to get us out of here and you poke both of these... Excuse me, sir. Put them back together right now. Might I have a word with you, please?